The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished, for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. It is God the Holy Spirit who teaches us and who helps us to understand the things of His Word and who illuminates our thinking as to where we need to apply the Word in our own life. So we always start with a few moments of silent prayer for confession of sin if necessary, and then we open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have your grace, that it is a grace that began far in eternity past as you anticipated all that would happen in human history and provided for every single need. You knew from eternity past that Adam would sin. You knew its consequences. You knew the results. You provided a perfect salvation. And in that salvation, you included every asset that we would need to handle any situation in life. You provided us with your word, that over the centuries you have revealed your will to us, that we might have the mind of Christ before us, that we might be able to look at the events surrounding us from your viewpoint and not from our limited viewpoint. That on the basis of divine viewpoint, we might have our mentality transformed, that we might think and act as you would have us for your glory. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that we would be challenged by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our study of Judges, and we're still in the introductory stage. And if the Lord is gracious, and I'm not long-winded, we just might make it to verse 1, but don't count on it. Last time we began our study in Judges, and we saw that the key verse in Judges is given for us at the end of the book. In Judges 21, verse 25, we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now this verse is mentioned twice in Judges That tells us that we need to pay attention to it. And the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, is repeated two other times in Judges 18.1 and and 19.1. So there is something about the purpose for this book that has to do with the concept of kingship. Now, we do not live in a monarchy, so the application for us is going to be looking at God's word from the framework of helping us understand uh, political theory. We're going to learn a lot about leadership. Leadership transfers to almost every category of life. If you're a father, then it applies to you as a leader in the home. If you're a husband, it applies to you as the leader in the marriage. If you are uh, wherever you are in, in your work life, you can be a leader in some at some level and demonstrate sh- certain leadership characteristics. So it does not matter who you are, where you find yourself in life, there are certain principles of leadership that we will call from this book that will apply to you. Now when we look at, uh, at Judges by way of uh, just review to place it in the canon, we saw that it is the first real historical analysis in human history. And by historical analysis, I don't mean simply a chronicle or a listing of events. That was the Greek concept that came along about a hundred years later. 
And in, in Herodotus, Thucydides, Herodotus is normally called the father of history, and Thucydides is a great historian. In fact, many scholars believe that Luke modeled his, his uh, gospel after historical, historiographical principles of, uh, of uh, Thucydides. But they came along late. We're talking about 5th century B.C. Athens at that time, and here we're talking about 1300 to 1400 B.C., uh, at the very latest, it's written about 1,000 B.C. By, by Samuel, but it reveals God's view of history. And that's what real history tells you what the events mean. It tries to interpret the events, not just tell you that this happened on Sunday and that happened on Monday and something else happened on Tuesday, but to show you the purposes, the reason why, and develop principles from that. So it's only from a divine viewpoint, as I said last time, God revealing his will and his interpretation of history through the prophets, 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, that man is able to see where history is going and what moves history. Uh, I remember taking a fascinating doctoral course on historiography, and uh, one of the things that I had to do was read through about six or seven different historians in each different philosophical school or historiographical school and chart out their philosophy of history. And what you have to decide is whether they're linear or cyclical. Those are the primary schools and what, what the end of history is for that particular writer and what it is that they see that causes events to move through history. And if you look back in Ancient history, if you go back to the ancient Egyptians, Mesopotamians, there really isn't a concept of history because there's no concept of going anywhere. There's no real concept of progress. And to have history, real history, you have to have some concept of progress. And you only get that when you have a divine viewpoint of history, that history is God, the outworking of God's plan in time, and that it is going somewhere. It has a culmination in the new heavens and the new earth. And so that God is working out his purposes. And as a Christian, our view of history, our causation in history is sin. Twofold, it's really the grace of God interacting in history because of human sin. And it is human decisions and, and often human failures that move events from one level to the next, and then it is God and grace intervening to bring redemption. Now, Deuteronomy gave us the constitution for the theocratic uh, government of Israel. Joshua shows the acquisition of the land. Remember, we have to have three things to have a, have a nation. You have to have a land, a people, and a, and a form of government or constitution. Deuteronomy provides the constitution the most, based on the Mosaic law. Joshua was the acquisition of the land. And now Judges is the first book to work out history. And so in, in Judges we see how man responds to God, specifically in the nation Israel. And so this becomes a framework of understanding history that develops throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And in this book we are going to focus on the, uh, the writer wants us to focus on the paganization, that's sort of a coined word, the paganization of Israel. You see, when we look at our verse here, we see two ideas. Number one is that there's no king in Israel. So we have to talk in terms of monarchy and kingship and what's going on around Israel. And the second idea here is that, is that of moral relativism. When there is a rejection of authority, especially a rejection of God, because when the writer says there was no king in Israel, that is a, a, an intentionally ambiguous statement. Nearly everybody you read or hear will take the first superficial meaning for that and say that this was written during the monarchy as a defense for the monarchy, and that's true, but it doesn't go far enough. That this is a defense for the monarchy, but when the writer says there was no king in Israel, who was the king supposed to be? The king was supposed to be God. And so this statement contains within it a rejection of the theocracy, that because they had rejected God as the source of absolutes in the nation that it ended up in moral relativism. And so the Judges is a particularly negative book because it shows us what happens when a culture cuts itself loose from the anchor of divine absolutes. Now, what I mean by paganization is that sometimes we use the word paganism as a bit of a, a pejorative or, or a negative term. 
And I don't mean it that way. It has a real technical term, and that means anybody who is operating on a way of thought that is not biblical. It's what a pagan is. It's somebody who is, does not have a relationship with God, is not saved, and is thinking apart from uh, a divine viewpoint. And what we see in Judges is that the, the most extreme example in the Bible of paganism are the Canaanite tribes in the land at the time of the conquest. They have uh, perverted all of the divine institutions. They have given themselves over completely to the uh, fertility cult and the phallic cult, and they are about as degenerate a society as could possibly find at any time in human history. It just doesn't get a whole lot worse than what was going on in Canaan at this particular time. So instead of saying the Canaanization, which is the technical concept, but we don't have to worry in our culture about being Canaanized because we're not going to think like that. It's a broader term. Paganization, that's what they had done. They, they, they exemplified the extremes of pagan thought and where it naturally leads. Where relativism always leads is in the complete destruction and perversion of the human race. So Judges records the paganization of Israel. And so this is a warning to us as believers of the seriousness of letting our thinking be transformed by Bible doctrine. If you think about it, by way of analogy, the land of Israel represents, at the time of the conquest... As think about Joshua and the army standing on the east bank of the Jordan River, just about to cross. God has given them the land. It is occupied completely by a pagan culture known as the Canaanites. There's a lot of subgroups, the uh, Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Girgashites and all kinds of other ites that we're going to discover as we go through here. But... <clears throat> That is a picture of your mind and your thinking at the moment of salvation. At the instant of salvation, God gives every believer every asset we need to transform our thinking. But at the moment of our salvation, our thinking is 100% pagan. Because that's what we have been for five years, ten years, twenty years, whatever age it was when you trusted Christ as your Savior... You had imbibed paganism. Now, there might have been a certain amount of truth that you had learned during that time, a certain amount of establishment truth. There always is. Satan is a master of creating systems of thought that are 80%, 90%, 98% true, but it's that small percentage that's false that changes everything else. For example, you might have a glass of water. And that's fine, and it's healthy, and it's good, and it's nourishing, and it's necessary. But if you add two or three drops of cyanide to it, it's still 99% water, but it's the cyanide that's going to kill you. And that's the difference. It, the introduction of pagan thought changes the shape, the structure, the relationship of all the other details within your thinking. So even if you have a certain level of truth in your thinking, it's cast in a wrong frame of reference. So as believers, we have to challenge our thinking and change our entire framework. That's why the Scripture says that we are to renew our thinking, to renovate our thinking. That's why we are to have the mind of Christ. We are to learn, learn to look at creation, at all of the establishment principles, at all of the divine institutions from a divine viewpoint framework. We don't just look at them because um, and we just don't look at the Scriptures and say, okay, let's learn a few things about how to be spiritual. Let's learn a few things about the salvation. But the Word of God addresses every single issue in life. Maybe not in excessive detail, but enough to give us a framework for being able to understand it and think about any issue from a divine viewpoint, no matter what that issue might be, from a scientific aspect to business, whatever. It challenges us, and we have to learn to think differently. So, just like the Israelites stood on the outside the land looking at what God had given them, and it was their job to go take the land bit by bit, acre by acre, that's what our job is. You look at your thinking at the moment of salvation, and it is your job to go do battle with all the human viewpoint concepts in your mind. That means you have to identify the human viewpoint concepts, and you have to remove them and replace them with divine viewpoint. 
That's why Paul talks about the fact that we are to take every thought captive for Christ. It is a battle metaphor. It builds on the analogy of Joshua and Judges. And in Judges, in Joshua we see the positive side, and in Judges we see the negative side. Now, when the writer tells us in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, we must set this over against what we learn in 1 Samuel 8, which is talking about the same basic period of time. And in 1 Samuel 8, we see what, what ends the period known as the Judges. And in, let's set context here, the Judges occurs between rough, or the conquest, excuse me, the end of the oppression occurs from about 1124, 1106, you have the Ammonite oppression, and at the same time you have the Philistine oppression from 1124 to 1084 B.C. We see the last two judges of the book of Judges are Jephthah and Samson, and they overlap. Now, the reason I'm putting this chart up here is so so often we think these judges are one after the other, and we don't correlate or take the time to correlate what's going on between Judges and Samuel, and that will help us understand these dynamics. Uh, Jephthah, Samson are overlap, and then you have the last real judge, Samuel, who is also the first of the prophets. Jephthah, Samson, and then Samuel. And Samuel, the uh, Ammonite, or excuse me, the, um, the bottom of the whole cycle occurs at the Battle of Aphek when the Ark of God's taken, then the Battle of Mizpah is when the Philistines are finally defeated, and then in about 1050, some 30 years later, Saul is made king. Now, that's the, that's the context for looking at 1 Samuel 8. It, it's right after, the, or 30 years after the Battle of Mizpah, the nation has just sort of wandered without leadership other than Samuel during that time, but they're still uh, not positive towards God. And in 1050 B.C., the elders of Israel come to Samuel. Samuel's old by this time, and his sons are not following in his footsteps, and they express a desire. 1 Samuel 8.5 And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. That's the point. They want to be like everybody else. So we have to take a minute when we look at this to find out what everybody else is doing, and we'll see some fascinating things that are going on historically at that time. Verse 6. But the thing, that is, this request, was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. See, that's the point. When the writer, and it was probably Samuel, when the writer of Judges says there was no king in the land, he's talking about the fact that Throughout this period of Judges, there is a steady deterioration of the spiritual condition of the nation, and the people as a whole have rejected God from being the king over them. Verse 8, Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So we see that they have given themselves over to idolatry, continuously negative towards God, and that is the result of the deterioration of the nation and why they are going to go through some of the things that will follow after 1 Samuel 8. They get Saul. Saul's not the ideal king. They get Saul, first of all, because um, they have to learn what the negative side of kingship is. God always intended, as we'll see in a little bit, God always intended for them to have a king, but he, they had to have Saul because they were operating on human viewpoint. And they wanted to have a king like everybody else, so God gave them Saul, and they suffered as a result of that. Now, as we get into this, I want to summarize the doctrine of kingship under nine points. So we're going to start off a little bit of review and summary of the doctrine of kingship and governmental authority under nine points. Point number one: human government. And the authority of human government is established in the covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. 
In the covenant with Noah, they are told the purpose of government is to restrain sin and evil in a culture and to exercise judicial restraint and punishment for criminal activity. Now, we know that because in, the, uh, in those verses, God tells Noah that, he is, that, that the human race now has been given the responsibility to execute, that is, to exercise capital punishment on murderers. Now, that is the most extreme form of exercising judicial uh, operations. So if they're given the extreme, then it follows that all other areas of government or or judicial decision-making goes with that. If you give somebody the most extreme responsibility, then everything that is less than that would go with it. So man is given delegated judicial responsibility. Of course, the sign of the Noahic covenant is a rainbow. And just remember, every time you see a rainbow, don't just remember that it is a sign of God's promise he'll never destroy the earth again by, by water, but it's also a sign that the Noahic covenant is still in effect and therefore we still need to exercise capital punishment. Now, we have to realize that that's a very controversial thing in our, in our culture. And it's a big issue this year in, in the election campaign and, and we're hearing a lot of things about the fact that it's not always practiced with an even hand or fairly, and there are always those, if you can't do it right, then get rid of it. And that's a wrong mentality. We have to remember that God in his omniscience knew that man was fallible, and he delegated the responsibility not as an option, but as a mandate. So capital punishment is not something that is optional. It is established and mandated in the Noahic Covenant, and we are to manage to do it to the best of his ability. And God knew that man would make mistakes. So just the fact that we're fallible and we make mistakes is not a legitimate excuse for backing away from capital punishment of criminals. Uh, In my analysis of the Mosaic Law, I find it fascinating that they don't use incarceration for criminal penalties. They either use capital punishment or a fine system throughout the Mosaic Law. And I think that what we need to do is is develop a broader range of capital punishment for just about anybody who commits a crime with a handgun or assault in the sense of uh, sexual assault or uh, homicide. But then I'm just hardcore, and I think we need to clean up our culture. But I think that that, that's pretty well reflected in the concepts in the Mosaic Law. And for lesser crimes, there was the penalty of of, uh, of fines. But the reason it's so severe is to emphasize the importance of the criminal act. It is to defend the victim. See, we're so concerned with criminal rights that we forget about victims' rights, and that the focus of the Mosaic Law is always on restraining the criminal and removing the cancer of criminality from the culture, and you never get the idea of, of, uh, rep, of, um, of uh, somehow reforming the criminal. One of the things that we'll note in a minute is that one of the vast differences in political theory is the idea of the ultimate nature of man. If you think man is basically good, then you're going to make decisions and you're going to have a certain political philosophy and a certain theory about the judicial system. If you think that man is inherently evil, a sinner, as the Bible says, then that means that to be consistent with that, you're going to make other decisions. In fact, uh, Thomas Sowell, who's a uh, black intellectual political theorist, written a number of books, but one of his first books was called A Conflict of Vision, where he traces this. He makes the opening statement that it's interesting that, that on, almost any political, on almost any political issue, people tend to line up on either one side or the other, no matter what it is, from capital punishment to taxation to um, uh, appointment of, of, uh, of Supreme Court justices, whatever it is, the same people tend to always line up on the same side of the issue. Now, why is that? It's because of something he calls vision, what I would call presuppositions. And that if you have certain, a certain presupposition about the way life is and the way people are, then that's going to affect everything else. And he traces this back historically, back into the 18th century, and demonstrates that the ultimate difference between a 
a liberal view of politics and a conservative view of politics is that um, our liberal view of government, political view of go- our, our conservative view of government, is that liberals tend to think that man is basically perfectible and improvable, and that because man is basically good, and those go together. And the conservatives tend to think that man is basically a sinner, which is what the Bible says, and he is not perfectible, and so society is not perfectible. And those are vastly different views of reality, and you can't bring them together. And so depending on how you view the nature of man will determine how you view almost every other issue in life. Ultimately goes back to that presupposition. And what the Bible is going to show us in Judges is that man is basically a sinner and needs government to restrain man because of his sinful tendencies. So it starts off with, this is established at the Mosaic Covenant, point number one. Point number two, in Israel, this government took the specific form of a theocracy. God was the ruler, and under him were specific leaders called Shaphatim, or judges. Translate that judges. I think a better translation would be deliverers. And these judges were raised up in times of national need to deliver the nation from oppression, lead the armies of Yahweh against the enemy, and in some cases, in some cases, you see Deborah rendering judicial decisions and a few others, but for the most part it was more of a military-type leadership uh, for the nation. But it's a theocracy. God is the king, and under him are these Shaphatim. If you were to compare uh, Israel with all the nations around him, you find cognate terms for the, the Shaphtu, the Shaphtanu, uh, 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 different titles, similar concept, different, I mean, cognate words in Akkadian, in Ugaritic, in uh, Phoenician, but in all those other cultures, in the Akkadian culture, in uh, Sumeria, um, and, uh, in Sumer, in Egypt, Mesopotamia, there's always a king. There's always the strong authority over them. But when you come to Israel, there's no king. There's just the judge. Point three. Al, would you check the air conditioners turned down a little bit? It is. I'm seeing people turning blue this morning. Okay, point number three. Under this theocratic government, which was established by God in the Mosaic Law, Israel was given a code of freedom, not which was unique in the ancient world and unique in history. The Mosaic Law and the first Ten Commandments provide a code of freedom that undergirds everything else in the Mosaic Covenant. There are three sections to the Mosaic Law. The first section is the preamble, the introduction, which is the uh, Ten Commandments. Then there's a section that has to do with, with law code. And then the third section has to do with ritual. The first two sections apply to everybody in the nation, believer and unbeliever alike, and therefore they provide a framework of freedom for the ancient world. In that, if you do a study of the Mosaic Law, what you will discern is that in God's view, the purpose for government is twofold. It is to protect its citizens from internal enemies, that is, criminals, and to protect the nation from external enemies, that is, foreign aggression. In order to protect a nation from internal enemies, from criminals, it demands a sound judicial system based on objective and fair laws. It demands a police system that applies those laws and arrests the criminals and a judicial system that interpret that applies the laws, does not interpret them, but does a, a judicial system that applies the laws and discovers who is guilty and who is not guilty. That's the basis for freedom. So the, the Mosaic Law establishes a sound judicial system, the necessity for a nation to have a sound judicial system and a police system. So there should always be respect in a national entity for the police. Now what happens when a culture becomes paganized, it is not long before the people who inhabit these institutions reflect the paganized concepts of the culture from which they come. 
The police come out of our pagan culture, and so they're going to reflect the same arrogant, uh, relativistic ideas as the culture. So, so as the culture becomes more and more paganized, what you discover is more and more corruption among the leadership. You discover more and more corruption among the police. You discover more and more corruption among the judiciary. But that does not give any citizen the right to lower their level of respect for the institution. You may not respect the person in the position of authority, but you always have to respect the position of authority. And that's what becomes difficult for believers living in a paganized culture. You've got to have to go to Romans chapter 12, and even under the terrible dictatorship of Nero in Rome, Paul says that the government is a minister for the purpose of righteousness. Even under that uh, destructive government and, and distorted government. So, as a believer, our responsibility is always to have respect for the position of authority, even if the people in that position uh, do not live up to that. In terms of the protecting the nation from external enemies, foreign aggression, there are generally two types of nations, those that are power-hungry, always seeking to grab land and power away from other nations, and those who love freedom. And if you are in a nation that loves freedom, then it is necessary to have a strong military in order to protect yourself from the aggression of other nations. Once you let the military collapse, then there will no longer be a hedge to protect you against foreign aggression. And this is exactly what we'll see time and time again in Israel during the period of the Judges. One of the evidences of paganization of a culture is the idea that there can be world peace. That is not a biblical concept. In scriptures, Jesus said that there would be wars and rumors of wars until I come again. That's reality. To think otherwise is to be divorced from reality and to forget that, that man is basically a sinner. See, once again, we see the difference in visions. Those that think that man is basically good and man and society are perfectible will think that we can actually achieve world peace. Those who think that man is not perfectible, that man is basically sinful and evil, are going to guard against that. That doesn't mean you treat everybody as if they're the scum of the earth. It just means you think realistically, knowing that everybody has a sin nature and that there can be problems, and so you guard against those. You have the systems in place to protect a nation. Point four. Under the Mosaic Law, Israel had the right to possess property, enjoy the blessings of that property, to benefit and to profit in business transactions unhindered by an overpowering government. They did not have a bureaucratic government coming in and taxing them to the max and taking away what was rightfully the citizens. See, that's really what taxation is. Now, Jesus said that we are to render under Caesar that which is Caesar, and that establishes the principle that a government does have the right to tax. But the more a government taxes the earnings of its citizens, the less freedom they have. Because if you work six months out of the year in order to pay your income tax bill, you, have, you are a slave for six months to the federal government and you're paying the salaries. You're working for six months to pay the salaries of all the bureaucrats in Washington. That just sort of brings it down home. So under the Mosaic Law, you did not have that. That was what God warned the nation about when they wanted a king. Is a king's going to come and build a, build a, a bureaucracy and increase the tax burden on everybody. Under the Mosaic Law, Israel had the right to possess property, enjoy its blessings, to benefit and to profit in business transactions unhindered by an overpowering government. That's the essence of, of a free enterprise and is consistent with a capitalistic view of economics. Point five. Freedom includes authority and respect for authority. That's why Israel lost their freedom during the period of the judges so many times is because they lost the concept of authority. They were relativistic. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They rejected the authority of God. Freedom without authority is anarchy. Authority without freedom is tyranny. When you have freedom, everybody wants to do whatever they want to do, and everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes, then everybody goes, goes their own direction, and a culture implodes from the inside out. On the other hand, when you have authority without freedom... Then you have tyranny. This is what was demonstrated in the culture surrounding Israel. There was tyrannical forms of government and there was no freedom. 
You can't have freedom without authority, and you can't have authority without freedom, and they must be maintained in a balance. In the Christian life, freedom without authority is antinomianism. Freedom without authority in the Christian life is antinomianism. It just means that people who think they can sin with impunity because Christ has already died for their sins on the cross, so now they don't need to listen to any of the mandates of Scripture. They can just do whatever they want to do. So in the Christian life, freedom without authority is expressed as antinomianism, and authority without freedom is legalism, the, the tyranny of legalism. Point six, absence of a despotic monarchy in Israel not only meant a high degree of personal freedom, but it stood out in the ancient world as a unique and powerful witness for Yahweh. It stood out as a unique and powerful witness so that as the caravanners came through, they would see that everywhere else they went, everyone was afraid of the government. They did whatever the government said. There was tyranny. There were dictatorships. There was a divine right king like in Egypt. But in Israel, there was true freedom. And this was to be a witness for God and the unique environment of Israel. Point number seven. Under this environment of freedom, Israel could achieve spiritual success, which would bring them material blessing, military victory, and agricultural bounty as a testimony to the grace and power of the one true God. Remember, your ability, your potential for success is directly related to your potential for failure. If a government comes in and wants to provide a safety net... And they raise that safety net up, they're also lowering the ceiling of opportunity and freedom. Because in order to protect those who make bad decisions and suffer the consequences from it, they have to take away from those who have been willing to risk and to gain and to succeed. And so they are limited in their ability to reap what they have uh, have done and to benefit from the results of their uh, good decisions. So that is one of the problems with socialism is it limits people's ability to succeed and to benefit from their own initiative. And it also limits the consequences so that people don't have to worry so much about being a failure and they can just end up uh, becoming a, a burden to everyone else and relying upon everyone else to take care of them. Point number eight, failure to follow the divine mandates in Israel led to a cultural decline where Israel resembled their pagan neighbors and there was no discernible difference in the way they thought or acted. Israel just absorbed like a sponge all the value system, all the religious thinking, the political thinking of the Canaanites surrounding them and the result was that they didn't look, act or think any differently from anyone else. And this is exactly what we see going on in Christianity today, is because the message from the pulpits in most churches is so shallow and never goes anywhere much beyond salvation and maybe a few little things about prayer and a couple other concepts of spirituality that are usually muddled and fuzzy, that uh, Christians can't grow. And so they don't look any different from anybody else, and they go out and they act the same, and they don't act as salt and light as they are supposed to in the midst of, of a culture. So when a culture fails to uh, follow divine mandates, the result is going to be that they just look like all the pagans and they have failed to advance in the spiritual life. And then finally, point number nine. Only Bible doctrine provides a framework to maintain the proper balance between freedom and authority. Only Bible doctrine provides a framework to maintain the proper freedom between uh, proper balance between freedom and authority, and it's only doctrine that helps you have any level of real freedom, no matter what the government might be. This is why Jesus said in the high priestly prayer in John 17:17, 17, 17, when he prayed to the Father, they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. Or excuse me, that was in John 8. They will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. It is only on the basis of doctrine that people can be free. See, if you are not, if your thinking is not aligned with reality, then you're not free. You're a slave because you're operating on false concepts. And it's only through the Word of God that 
we learn what reality is because God is the one who defines reality, not man. So when a nation is divorced from doctrine and has cut themselves off from the uh, anchor of absolutes in the Word of God, then that nation will always drift into paganism and then follow the historical trends either towards anarchy or tyranny. And that's exactly where we are as a nation because we have cut ourselves off from our roots in the Judeo-Christian ethic. We are adrift. We are in moral and moral relativism. There are no absolutes in the land. Everyone does what they want to do. And we are no different from the ancient Canaanites as a culture. And the result is that we are drifting more and more towards tyranny because once you get away into relativism, there has to be some sort of control. And so there will always be the pressure and the move towards the government to come in and solve everybody's problems and to provide security for everybody because nobody wants to take responsibility for their own decisions and for, especially for their own failures. Now, at the conclusion last time, we were looking at the difference between kingship in Israel and kingship in the ancient world. So you need to have in your mind... In your thinking, you need to have in your thinking something about the ancient world, a timeline in the ancient world so that you can understand what's going on. Here we go. So you can understand the dynamics. Now, here's the timeline. From roughly 2500 B.C. to 500 B.C., let's get our, our thinking together. I know most people don't know much about ancient history. But this, and this is very broad. I don't know that um, I could go out and absolutely prove everything, but I think that from my study of ancient history and study of the Scriptures, I think that this, is, this, this at least is, is demonstrable. It uh, might be a good doctoral dissertation for somebody at some point. After the flood, what happens after the flood? Noah and his sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, began to go out and cover the earth. They began to dominate the earth. Now, these men, in, in the eyes of their, uh, of their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, are like supermen. They're like gods. Remember, the three sons all lived about a hundred years prior to the flood. So they're all familiar with the antediluvian culture and the supermen and, and all the things that were done at that time. So they bring with them, through the flood, all of the ideas, all the technology, all the thinking of the antediluvian society. And so as they come off of the ark, they have the whole world before them, and they begin to spread out, and they have a technology that is unlike anything that we can imagine. It is antediluvian, and I think it was fairly advanced technology. I think it was a different base of technology than what we have today, but I would not be surprised if they had not the ability to fly, the ability to do all kinds of things that, um, that we have today. They came off the ark, and they lived another five, six hundred years before they died. But their children and their grandchildren did not live that long. So they, were, they survived their grandchildren, they survived their great-grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren. That would be as if you were alive today and your great-great-great-grandfather was still alive, but he, was, he acted younger, looked better, was stronger, knew more than you did. He looked like he was 35 and you're looking like you're 70 and you've got one foot in the grave. What would you think about that man? You would think he was a god. And that's exactly what happened. Is that the older generations that were one, two generation removed from the flood, either Shem, Ham, and Japheth or their immediate children, were viewed by five or six generations later as if they were gods. And so that's where you see mythology start to develop. It's a mix of concepts that came over. From before the flood, the idea of the Nephilim where the uh, demons came down and took uh, human wives and the offspring was half angel, half man, Genesis 6. And so there's a, there's a memory of that. There's a, a realization of what's going on with Shem, Ham, and Japheth and all their technology. And nobody else can do that. And it was being lost because it wasn't being passed on from generation to generation. And so out of this cultural situation, the Egyptian culture developed, and you had Pharaoh, who's the leader, is viewed as God. And we saw last time that Pharaoh is viewed as a God king, he is Ammon Re incarnate, and he's viewed more as a God than he is a man. No one, no national leader since 
has had the power and the authority of a pharaoh. It's never happened since. This guy was autocratic. They thought of him as God. If his shadow even fell on a citizen, that citizen had to be killed because he had been touched by the divine Pharaoh. Just his shadow. So that he has incredible power. There's no record in the old kingdom of, or, or middle kingdoms of, of slave revolts because they would be revolting against God. And he is viewed as God incarnate. In the Babylonian system, it was not the divine king, but the king was the prophet, priest, and king and exercised the same level of autocratic uh, kingship. Then we come to stage two in this broad look at human history, and you have Israel come along. Now, look at how Israel's government is described in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 16 and see how God defines for Israel their government. Looking down at verse 18. Now remember Israel's government. And Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is going to describe the government, the structure, and the organization of the twelve tribes. Ultimately, it's a theocracy. But their organization is tribal. It's a loose confederacy. The basis for the twelve tribes goes back to the fact that they, they're all descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what unifies them is the covenant that God has made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob covenant, and they're organized around a central sanctuary of the, the, the tabernacle. When they moved through the wilderness, each tribe had a location, and they surrounded a central tabernacle, that central site of worship, showing that the unifying point of their culture is God. It is not a past experience in the Exodus, it is not simply the covenant, it is the very presence of God and His relationship with Israel. And what we learn from that is that if you're going to have a political unity in a culture, it has to be based on a spiritual reality. Now, that spiritual reality can be pagan, or it can be biblical, but it can't be both. Because then you have, you have too much division. That's why we see a lot of the tension and fragmentation in our culture today is because the original foundation of our culture before uh, the founding of the nation and into much of the uh, 19th century was on a Judeo-Christian basis. But what happened in the 20th century is we cut ourselves loose from that, and so now we're cast adrift on a sea of pagan thought. And there's no unifying principle because within the culture there's still a large group of believers who are trying to operate on a Judeo-Christian basis. So there is this tension, and there will always be that tension until one or the other wins out. And we have a pretty good idea that until the Lord comes back, it's not going to be the Christian influence that wins out. So in Israel, there is a central place of unity. Now, God establishes a government, and we can see that in starting in verse 18. Notice there's no king here. You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Notice, to have righteous judgment, the term there is tzaddik. It's the term for righteousness. It's the Hebrew word that's comparable to dikaiosune. It means you have to have a source of absolutes. So that is what's given in the Mosaic Law. It comes from God. And you have, in order to have a sound judicial system, you have to have a solid sense, uh, a solid source of absolutes. And absolutes, as we're going to see, can't come from the people. They have to come from outside the people. Verse 19, you shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. Ever notice how so many cultures outside the U.S. operate on bribes? Uh, officials, custom officials, police, so many operate on a bribe system. And that is because there is no sense of justice or absolutes. And the cult, that, that is an example of paganism. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, perverts the words of the justice. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. By analogy, as a believer... The pursuit of justice, the pursuit of integrity by application is the purpose for the Christian life is to learn to operate on the standards of God throughout life and that is what gives you success in life. And then verse 21, we see the spiritual element. 
You shall not plant for yourself an Asherah. This was one of the groves where they worshipped the pagan gods. They would plant these trees in an area and there would be a shrine up there and they would go and often they would be involved in uh, fertility worship. They would be involved in with temple prostitution up there and that was a sign of their degradation and decline into paganism. So they are forbidden to plant any an, an Asherah of any kind uh, beside the altar of the Lord that God had to be exclusively the center of their culture. Now, if you skip down into chapter 17, we see some stipulations starting in verse 1 related to uh, sacrifice. And then in verse 8, it gives more examples of the nature of law and witnesses and objectivity. And then you come down to verse 14 and we see some stipulations about kings. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. So God prophesies what will take place in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And notice the stipulations. Verse 16, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. In other words, he's not going to accumulate prestige and power to himself. He's not going to make himself wealthy. He's not going to have all the trappings of leadership that all of the other kings have. There will be a distinction. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself. This was another sign of power and status among kings in the ancient world was the size of your harem. Now, look at verse 18. Now, it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. So, in Israel, the king is still under God. That's another thing that distinguishes the monarchy in Israel uh, from the monarchy everywhere else is everywhere else the monarch is, is the final authority and he's viewed as God in many cases and here he is always under God so the source of law does not come from the king the source of law does not come from the culture the source of law comes from God and the king is to write out a copy uh, in the presence of the Levitical priests and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. And the same kind of thing is, is mandated of all the citizens. That's why every believer needs to be reading through the Scriptures on a con- consistent basis. You're reminded of things. You, you see the promises of God. You, you learn the flow of history. You learn the events of the Scriptures. That doesn't mean you won't see things you don't understand or you might have a little confusion at some point. But just go past that and continue to read, and as you grow, you will come to understand some of these things. Now, what we see is historically what has happened is that you've moved from a status in the ancient world where you have this autocratic king in Egypt and Babylon to Israel, where at least in the early stage of the theocracy, from about 1400 to 1050 B.C., there is no king. You have true freedom, the highest level of freedom in any culture, any government, in human history. They're centered around a a central shrine of the tabernacle and later the temple, but the temple isn't built during this particular period, and there's tremendous freedom. Now, you would think that this might have some impact. I mean, that's what God designed it for. It's for this type of government organization and freedom to have some influence. Well, what happens is you come along and starting in about the uh, 8th or 9th century B.C. in Greece and later in Rome, you begin to see the development of something that scholars call an amphictyonate. Now, I'll write that up on the board for you because I know that that's, it's a tough word to learn how to spell. It's A-M-P-H-I-C-T-O-N-Y. Amphictyonate. Uh, I left out a, it's Y-O-N-Y. Amphictyony. Now, this comes from a couple of Greek words, and it basically means a, a culture that is organized or a league of tribes who settle around a common sanctuary. 
Now, where do you think they got that idea? All of a sudden, about the 8th or 9th century B.C., this begins to pop up in Greece. And you have the development of several Amphictyonies. For example, there's the uh, Calaria Amphictyony, which involves seven maritime cities in Greece. Calaria was an island in the Aegean, and they were organized around a central sanctuary to the god Poseidon. Then another famous Amphictyony in Greece was that of Onkestas of Boeotia. And there, there were 11 tribes that surrounded a sanctuary to Poseidon uh, in Onkestas. Then there is the Pan-Ionic League that was grouped around the central sanctuary in Malia, and that too was dedicated to Poseidon. And then one of the more famous was the uh, Paleo-Delphic Amphictyony in the 8th century around the sanctuary of Demeter near Thermopylae. And there, there were 12 tribes uh, surrounding the central uh, sanctuary. So, where did they get these ideas? Then over in Italy, there's an Etruscan League and, and two or three others. And uh, there is a shift that takes place in history. You go from Egypt and Babylon to Israel, and then all of a sudden, Greece and Rome have this shift. In Egypt and Babylon, you have a strong power structure. And then in Greece and Rome, now this is before the, this is before Alexander the Great, this is before the Caesars, this is before the Rome Republic, you have the development of these confederacies. Now they're different from what you see in, in, um, in Israel. What makes it different is that you don't have a God who has spoken and given absolute law to these nations, so they never survive. These Amphictyonic groups never make it because they don't have the God who is at the core of their political structure. So they try to duplicate things, but they remove God in the midst of. They remove God and they try to operate uh, the same kind of system, but without God. And they run into the same problem that Israel ran into because of their relativism. Now, what happens in Greece and Rome is you get the development of the, um, of the concept of the polis, the city-state, polis, P-O-L-I-S, the concept of the city-state, and you have the development of raw democracy, which emphasizes the fact that, that it's the people, the majority, that rules. That's also a, uh, it can be a dictatorship by 51%. Over the 49%, 49% can be right, but the 51% who are wrong are now uh, dictators over the 49%. That's part of the problem with democracy, is it sees that the ultimate source of value, the ultimate source of law comes out from the people. It's bottom up. So in the Egyptian Mesopotamian concept of law, you have law coming from the king, from the pharaoh from the king, uh, the, the head of the Mesopotamian uh, countries, Acadius, Sumer, and those countries, it's the prophet-priest-king who is the source of authority and the source of law. But it's still, it's a man. In Israel, it comes from God outside of the culture. And in Greece, now they've reversed it, it comes from the bottom up instead of from the top down. It's top down in Egypt. In Greece, it's from the bottom up, and this has tremendous ramifications. There's a great debate that goes on between the old philosophers. Uh, on the one hand, you have what we would call the liberals, Protagoras and the Sophists. And listen to some, a couple of quotes here that I think sound like they come off of the front page of, of any newspaper today and, and imitate or, 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 or illustrate what's going on in our own society. In uh, the in the 5th century B.C., Protagoras wrote, Humans are the measures of all things. Think about this. Humans are the measure of all things, of things that are that they are, and of things that are not that they are not. Now, what he's basically saying is the ultimate, the ultimate reference point is just what people think. All values come from man. There's no God. There's nothing out there objective. There's no objective truth. Everything is what each person wants it to be. And so there's no absolutes. All truth is, is subjective, and there's no absolute truth. One of his um, followers was a man named Gorgias, who said uh, whose basic position was that since there is no truth, 
And if there were, we couldn't know it. We must rely, therefore, on opinion. Doesn't that sound like something your neighbor would say? Since there is no truth, and even if there were, we couldn't know it. Notice how skeptical that is. Even if there is truth, we can't know it. That leaves us in, in total confusion. So if there is, even if there is truth, we couldn't know it. So the best we can do is just come up with our own opinions. And have you ever noticed when you're trying to witness to somebody, they just say, well, that's your opinion. And they're just trying to reduce the authority of God down to the same level as their own opinion generated from their own experience. And it's not my opinion, it's the Word of God, and that's not my opinion. And that's why as believers, and I've emphasized this again and again in John, that it's the Word of God is self-authenticating. So they may stand there all day long and say, no, it's not, that's just your opinion. But if the Word of God is the Word of God, then it carries with it its own sense of truth. And so they know it's true. Romans 1, they are without excuse. They know God exists, but they suppress it in unrighteousness. So we don't have to worry about trying to prove the Scriptures. It carries its own proof and validation with it, and they know it. But paganism always degenerates to relativism, and we see that even in ancient Greece. Now, that was countered by Plato and Aristotle because they knew that a society can't develop unless you have absolutes. But if you don't have a God who speaks to your culture, where do you get your absolutes? So they grounded the absolutes in the majority, and there were, there were many, many problems. Now, another thing to point out in all of this is that as you go through this shift, what happens is that in the Egyptian Mesopotamian concept, you have nature over man. Now... The result is that you deify nature into gods. And you have the storm gods, you have the fertility gods, you have the animal gods, you have Anubis and all the other animal-type gods that you have in the Egyptian uh, pantheon. And so man is under the authority of nature and he operates in fear and he's always trying to placate the gods of Egypt. Then when Israel came along, Israel said, no, it is God who is over man and God has placed man over nature. Incidentally, for those of you who are perceptive, the Greenpeace movement and the ecology, there is a Christian basis for having a correct view of creation and responsibility towards nature, but this isn't it. This is the pagan view, and that's where we're headed in much of modern ecology, is man serves nature, so you don't want to go out and change nature or improve nature or utilize natural resources because that's going to change the structure of nature. And nature is God, so you can't do that. You have to leave it the way it is. That's why the American Indians were here for 2,000 years and didn't do anything. Is that in paganism, you can't do anything. If you do anything to the natural resources, then you're... you're um, you're, you're, it's, a, it's a religious thing and you're hurting God. So that's where the ecology movement is going, worshiping Gaia, Mother Earth, and all of this other nonsense today. Israel comes along and biblically you have the pattern of God is over man, man is over nature, but what the Greeks did was they dumped God and you just have man over nature and this leads to the abuse and the destruction of nature because now you don't have a basis for responsibility which is the decree from God to utilize nature for those divine purposes and then man is made to serve man and you get into another form of uh, slavery and autocracy. Man, be, mankind comes into bondage to other men the community becomes the standard for absolutes, and man becomes a slave to the majority. Now, what they didn't realize, and what people don't realize when they're up worshiping nature, is the comment that is made in Deuteronomy 32.17. Moses says, They, that is the Canaanites, sacrifice to demons who are not God. They don't realize that those idols they construct really represent demons and all of this, all polytheism, all paganism ultimately is demonic religion and the demons are behind it. They sacrifice to demons who were not God, to God whom they have not known, new gods who came lately whom your father did not dread. In other words, your fathers were oriented to Bible doctrine so they didn't fear these, these pagan idols. They didn't fear the demons. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God 
who gave you birth. So that is Moses' indictment, but from that we learn that it is really demons that are behind all of the pagan religions. So modern man has to decide where the ultimate ground of authority lies. Is it in man or is it in uh, God? And this is the problem in Judges is they want to make man the ultimate authority and the result is relativism and destruction. Now to wrap up this morning, let's see a... uh, just a quick view of the organization of Judges. To get this in your mind, there's three sections in Judges. There's the introduction in chap- from chapter 1-1 through 3-6. The second division is from 3-7 to 16-31. And the third division are the last three or last four chapters which serve as sort of a couple of appendices to the narrative which describe uh, the... Distru- the uh, internal character collapse of the people. These are the divisions, 1-1 through 3-6, 3-7 to 1631, and 17, chapter 17 through 21. The first section introduces the various cycles of deliverance. It's going to go from the success of Joshua's generation to the failures of the subsequent generations because they reject the God of their fathers. And so it prepares us for the cycles of deliverance and discipline that will occur throughout this period. The main body of the book, from 37 to 1631, will show how this paganization affects leadership. The leaders always come from the mass of the people, so they reflect the values of the people, and often we get the leaders we deserve because they closely resemble the majority view of the nation. So when we get certain uh, leaders in our nation who reflect the paganism of the nation, we get exactly what we deserve, and it's part of probably part of God's discipline on the nation. 3-7 to 16-31, we're going to see a series of, of leaders, and one, one is worse than, uh, than the one preceding him. Each one uh, it gets, is worse than the one who, who he follows. And we see that the, the cumulative effect of moral relativism. And then in the last four chapters, we see several just grotesque episodes that take place in Israel during this time. And this shows that it's not just a problem of the leadership, it is a problem of the people and their negative volition. So that's a breakdown of the, of the book as a whole. And next time we'll come back and start in 1-1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? How, to do, how they did battle with the Canaanites and how that relates to spiritual, to spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for your grace that you have uh, given us your word to tell us the truth about the human condition that we are all sinners. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that this is our, our nature. But you did not leave it with a point of condemnation, but in grace you provided the perfect solution and you sent your Son to go to the cross to bear in his body on the cross uh, the penalty for all of our sins. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And the only way to have salvation is through faith in Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning uncertain of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we thank you for this study and pray that we would be challenged by the things that we're learning. In Jesus' name, amen.